Welcome to PwC IFRS Talks, your source of all things IFRS, technical accounting matters, business issues, current standards setting and regulatory updates. I'm your host, Ruth Preedy. In today's episode, we're going to be looking at, well, continuing in our COVID-19 series, and we're going to look at IS36 impairment. So that's the impairment of non-financial assets. Now, we've already covered um, impairment of financial assets with Sandra Thompson, where we looked at the expected credit loss model. Um, but today we're going to focus on non-financials. And to help me through that, I'm joined by a newbie to our uh, podcast studio, and that is Mr. Paul Shepherd. Welcome, Paul. Thanks very much for having me along in this virtual world, Ruth. I know. We were saying earlier, why have we not done a podcast together before? And that's because Paul is a partner in Australia and I sit in London. So it's quite difficult for us to get together. But in the virtual world, nothing is impossible. So there you go. One positive coming out of this. Um, so let's start at the beginning of the impairment test. Um, to decide if we even need to do an impairment, uh, we have to look for an impairment trigger. So is the COVID-19 pandemic a triggering event in IS-36? I'm going to say that for most of our clients, the answer will be yes. The reason for that is COVID-19 is going to have significant impact across their business, be it the impact on revenues, the impact on their profits, the impact on their production, their sourcing of raw materials. Um, even for some of them, you'll see that they'll have market cap deficiencies when you compare it with their net assets going forward. Yeah, so I was going to ask that. So with one one of the actual examples listed in IS36 is you obviously compare the market cap of a company and to its carrying amount. And if the market cap's fallen below, we would we would think about an impairment. Does it mean you definitely got an impairment if that happens? Yeah, so we've we've been looking at at market cap deficiencies for a long time, and we've had these conversations with with many of our clients and also regulators. My experience is that while it might be an indicator of impairment, it doesn't necessarily mean that you have an impairment. But what it does do is require you to perform an impairment test. Okay, so perfect segue there. So we're saying for many, the COVID-19 probably is an indicator of impairment, you know, lots of economic uncertainty. And like you said, so many different areas within the business could be impacted. So if you decide or make the judgment that you have got an impairment trigger, you then need to do yourself an impairment test. So we'll get into cash flows and things later, but what do people need to think about when they're just starting the impairment test? I think it is important that we, we do talk to this question because the way we've set this up is, is COVID-19 an impairment trigger and do I need to do a test? One of the things we've got to remember is that the accounting standard is really written from the perspective of um, a sort of a bottom-up approach to impairment testing. So it's not one answer fits all, but rather I need to think about, am I testing an asset for impairment? Am I testing a group of assets which form a CGU for impairment? Am I testing a group of CGUs that form a larger CGU for impairment test as well? And so in this scenario, it's likely that we might have indicators of impairment for some or all of our impairment, uh, groups of asset 
that need to be tested for impairment. Yeah, so you mentioned that you've got cash generating units. So levels of testing is actually something that which is a real challenge in the standard that people often forget to think about. But it is the lowest level that generates independent cash inflows. So it might just not be, you know, you're straight away looking at your big, your goodwill and all your CGUs under it, but there might be lower level um, tests to do there. So that's a really useful point. Thank you. One, one question I've had from people is if you've got a 31st of December year end and you've already done your goodwill impairment test at 31st of December, you come into, say, Q1, half one within 2020 and you do identify you've got a trigger. Can you just say, well, I did my impairment test 31st of December, I'm just going to roll it forward? So I think certainly for goodwill and for non-amortising intangibles, that's probably a question that a lot of people will ask themselves because the literature talks about doing an annual impairment test for those assets. But what's important to be aware of is that the standard actually says you can do an annual impairment test for those assets, but at each reporting date, you would also need to do a test if there has been an indicator of impairment. And so for those assets tested annually, there's a good chance that if you're doing quarterly or interim reporting, you'll need to do a test. Same thing for for amortising intangibles and for depreciable assets where you don't have a requirement for an annual impairment test. You only need to test for impairment when there is actually an indicator. Okay, perfect. So you do, even though you've done your year end, you might have to do another test. Jumping around a little bit here, but just thinking, staying in the world of interim financials while we're there, we've got this hidden little interpretation called IFRIC 10. And I think it's something that often gets overlooked by people. Can you just explain to us around, you know, if you do do an impairment test and you do have an impairment that you record in your interims, what does IFRIC 10 tell us? Yeah, so what IFRIC 10 tells us, Ruth, is that if I do my impairment testing of my goodwill and I book an impairment of goodwill in an interim period, when I get to my full year impairment testing, I can't reverse that impairment if the value of my cash generating unit has gone back up. And so that's going to be quite a challenging thing for for some companies at the moment where it's going to be really hard to tell what the impact at this June, for example, might be compared to the impact at December. And so if you're used to doing your impairment testing at December, you might be thinking, well, you know what? I'll have a better idea by the end of the year and maybe I won't need to book an impairment at all because I could return to normal. Whereas actually what if 10 is going to tell you and the interaction with the impairment standard, you've got to do your impairment test at the quarter or at the half. And if you book an impairment of goodwill, you won't be able to reverse that. Yeah. Okay. I think that's one like I think people just overlook it and don't don't think about that one. So I'm, I'm pleased you brought brought that one up. So thank you, Paul. Okay, so we've we've said we we might have a trigger. If we have a trigger, we need to do an impairment test. Think about the levels of testing. Let's now get into the impairment test. A lot of the time, you're doing discounted cash flow models. So we've gone through, you know, do we have a triggering event? And then you've helpfully told us that if we've got a triggering event, we need to do an impairment test. We thought about the levels of testing that we do that impairment test. Then more likely than not, you're going to have to have a discounted cash flow. So another big challenging area that we've had lots of questions on is how do we actually do this discounted cash flow? Is there more than one way you can do it? There are a, there are a few ways that you could approach it. 
uh, certainly. My experience over the years has been that more often than not, our clients will do a single cash flow model and they'll adjust for risk through the discount rate. That's a bit of a generalization. But what we're seeing now is people are thinking through the challenges of COVID, their ability to forecast, and, and really people are thinking about there being two approaches to this. There's the single cash flow model where people will adjust for risk through the discount rate. But the alternative, and, and we're thinking that we'll probably see this used more often, is that people will do a scenario analysis and they'll probability weight uh, two or three cash flow models. Okay, so that maybe let's talk a little bit more about this probability weighted cash flow because obviously businesses are, you know, if you take your world out of accounting, which I know we don't like to do, but they will be having to think about, you know, how am I going to run the business and what is going to happen if COVID-19 continues for a long time? What happens if, you know, it recovers and the economy recovers quickly? So they must be talking about these scenarios anyway. But could you give us a bit more like how how would you think through it? What How long would you do you say it lasts for? Like how do you deal with this uncertainty where we don't know the answers in one of those models? Yeah, well, I think that's actually one of the reasons why people are starting to think that the probability weighted scenario might be used more often. So some of our, some corporates out there will currently be thinking about you know, how do they do their forecasting just for their annual budgeting process. Others will be speaking with their banks and they're going to have to do some forecasting as well. Others will be thinking about their going concern assessment. And what we're seeing is, as they start to think through those processes, it's going to be hard to come up with the one absolute and correct model. As you said, even just figuring out how long it is until they hit the low from a cash flow perspective, and then how quickly they can return to what might be the new normal is going to be hard to guess. And so because of that, we're expecting that companies will probably make some sort of a multi-scenario analysis and they'll put a weighting to each one of those scenarios as best they can estimate. Okay, so I think what I'm hearing is in IS 36, it doesn't prescribe that you have to do one model. You could do a single set of cash flows with a single discount rate or you could do this scenario analysis. But I think given the all this uncertainty and the challenges, it could be hard to build all of those different possibilities into a single set of cash flow. So this could be the time that actually probability weighted cash flow could be really helpful um, when you're doing an impairment test. Anything else people need to think about in that cash flows? One of the things that people are going to need to think about is just how do they go about sourcing those estimates of, of the cash flows that they'd like to include. And so whilst they might be doing, for example, a value and use calc, which would have them do an entity specific cash flow model, the literature does require you to consider external sources of information. So when earlier on I mentioned that they might need to consider how soon until they hit the sort of low point in their cash flows, how quickly is it that they could return to what the new norm might be, your ability to source external data to support those assumptions. So it might be by industry, by country, but the ability to get out there and find some independent sources is going to be really important when it comes to preparing your cash flow forecasts. That's one of the examples I'd use. Okay, brilliant. Very helpful. So, so many things to think about in the world of impairment. And, you know, it's a real challenge. Some people are going to have to do impairment tests 
you know, in their interims, which maybe they don't normally do. And in an uncertain time, it is just really difficult to predict what's going to happen. So I think IS36 deals with this uncertainty by putting lots and lots of disclosure in there. Um, so what do you, what, what should people specifically think about in disclosure? What do people miss in IS36 disclosures? So for me, there's sort of three buckets when it comes to disclosure. There's the disclosures that are required when you've booked an impairment, the disclosures when you have goodwill and non-amortizing intangibles, and then there's a question mark around, well, what disclosures do I have to make if I've got other non-current assets, but they're not goodwill? And so the first one, when you've got an impairment, the literature is, is very clear about making disclosure around the assumptions that have gone into your impairment tests and explaining what the causes would be that resulted in that. When you come to the second bucket, which is the one around goodwill and non-amortizing intangibles, the literature is fairly explicit about the sorts of things that you should be disclosing. And, and one of the things that will be quite important at the moment, in particular for people that don't take an impairment, would be the consideration of whether or not a reasonable possible change in the assumptions could result in a future impairment and disclosing how much headroom there is available in the CGU at the moment. And then the third bucket, which picks up a little bit on that idea, is that sometimes, and, and if they're like some of the companies I've dealt with in the last few years, impairment testing has already resulted in the impairment of goodwill and intangibles. And so people are now testing, you know, tangible physical assets for impairment. and the literature doesn't have the same narrative around the disclosure requirements in 136. And what you actually need to do is go and consider the disclosure requirements around critical estimates and judgments, where I think for a lot of those other non-financial assets, people are going to need to consider making additional disclosure around the estimates and the judgments, how they approach their impairment testing, what some of the sensitivities might be, where perhaps in the past they haven't made those disclosures because they haven't been testing goodwill for impairment. Brilliant, thank you. Yeah, that key assumptions one in IS36 is definitely, um, I think, the one of the most important things to get in your uh, financials. And then IS1 is like a catch-all <laughs> anywhere where you've used judgments and estimates, which unfortunately in today's current environment, there'll just be a lot of that. So I think the common theme I'm hearing throughout the COVID-19 series, which we're bringing out on podcasts, is the importance of disclosure and just explaining how, you know, how you've gone about some of these judgmental tests and, you know, yeah, where you've made those judgments so people understand. Okay, Paul Shepherd, thank you very much for joining me all the way from Australia. Luckily, the time difference is not too bad at the moment. And we will definitely have you back. I'm sure we'll have more impairment conversations. For people that want more information about this, we've got plenty of information on uh, PwC Inform. We're bringing out lots of frequently asked questions. And thank you very much for listening. Stay safe and happy accounting. The preceding programme was brought to you by PricewaterhouseCoopers LLP. This content is for general information purposes and is not a substitute for consultation with professional advisors.